Thank you, Courtney and Renee. <laughs> In the 70s, Hal Lindsey got everyone thinking about the second coming with the late great planet Earth. In the 90s and into the 2000s, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins did the same thing with the Left Behind series. While I've made no secret about the fact that I disagree with just about everything they've written about the end times, I do have to admit that they got a lot of people thinking about it. And generally, that's not a bad thing. Now, poor theology can lead to fundamental misunderstandings and sometimes even horrible consequences. It has in the past even led to religious wars and unbelievable atrocities done in the name of God. But generally, it's a good thing to get people thinking about the kingdom of God and looking for it. Because while looking for it, some actually find it. And just as Lindsay LaHaye and Jenkins caught the attention of millions by trying to find religious significance in political events, so the political turmoil in Jesus' day stimulated interest in the kingdom of God among Jews. And while looking for it, some actually did find it in their midst. This morning we find Jesus responding to the question most people ask when thinking about the kingdom. When is it coming? In his response and in the subsequent teaching to the disciples, we find some very important truths about the kingdom of God. And we begin with his response to some who were at least intellectually curious about it. Some who were wondering about the kingdom of God. We're studying in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, as to the why the Pharisees were seeking Jesus' thoughts on the kingdom of God, we can only guess. They obviously did not like him or respect him. Still, in spite of their professional jealousy and their plotting to get rid of him, they did recognize him as a teacher of sorts, and they probably just wanted to compare notes. You know, they had some pretty definite ideas about the kingdom of God. They viewed it as an earthly kingdom with an earthly king. They envisioned it as a day when Jews would once again rule the world as they had done during the reign of King David. There was no debate among them as to the nature of the kingdom. What they did wonder about was 
when it would begin. Did Jesus have any ideas about the kingdom's appearance when it might come? I think he indicated that he did. But then he said, it's not coming with signs to be observed. Now, I'm sure they didn't like his answer any more than most end times authors do today. What he said was, in fact, a frontal attack on everything they thought about the kingdom of God. They were looking for signs that the coming was near. They were looking for signs of imminent rebellion and the appearance of a military leader who could lead the revolt against Rome. That, they were convinced, would usher in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus said indicated that the kingdom would not be something most would even be able to identify. No one would be able to say, look, here it is, or there it is. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Now, there would be physical evidence of its existence, but there would be no identifiable borders. The kingdom of God transcends physical limitations and definitions. In fact, Jesus said the kingdom of God was already in their midst. God was working to change men's hearts, even as they were speaking. And the one who would make it possible for men to come into the kingdom of God was standing before them, literally in their midst. But they wouldn't recognize Jesus as Messiah Nor would they be able to identify the kingdom even when surrounded by it because they were looking for the wrong thing. But at least they were wondering about it. And that was a start. And that led Jesus to pursue the matter further with his disciples, with those who were more than just curious about it. Those who were longing for its coming. Or who would one day be longing for its coming? Picking up in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away, and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus began by telling the disciples that the days would come when they would long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but wouldn't be able to see it. Now, what did he mean by that? You know, he often referred to himself as the Son of Man. So they knew he was referring to himself here. And they were, in fact, living in the days of the Son of Man. But the days were coming, Jesus said, when they would long to see one of those days. 
Now, that could obviously refer to the fact that a day was coming when he would no longer be with them and that they would long for those former days. The days of the Son of Man, however, is also a messianic term. And Jesus could be referring to the fact the disciples would not only long for what they once had with him on earth, but for what they would have with him in the future. In one sense, the messianic kingdom had come. Jesus was in their midst. The kingdom of God was among men. But in another way, it was still coming. That was true then. And it's still true today. There is both a present and a future sense to the kingdom of God. We are part of it now, yet it is coming in its fullness at Jesus' return. So Jesus is talking about the second coming here. After his ascension into heaven, the disciples would long for Jesus' return. They would miss him. And they would be watching for him, longing for him. And if they were not careful, their longing might make them susceptible to false prophets who would claim to have inside information on his return, claiming to know when he was coming or where he was going to appear. Some might even say he had already come, that he was over here or over there. And they would invite the disciples to follow them so they could show them where he was. Well, Jesus warned them, and I think he's warning us, to not go running after anyone who claims to have exclusive information about his coming. He told us the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. And he tells us that when he does come back, everyone will know it. It will be as visible as lightning filling the sky. We will know when he returns. And we should long for it. But we must not allow our longing to open us up to deception. Nor can we allow ourselves to be discouraged by his delay. He will return, and the kingdom will come in its fullness when everything is ready. Even though the kingdom was in their midst, it couldn't come in its fullness in the disciples' day until Jesus had suffered and been rejected. And since it still hasn't come, it's obvious that God's purposes in delaying have not yet been fulfilled. But one day he will come and every eye will behold him. Sadly, however, not everyone will be ready for his coming because some never think about it. Verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, while some wonder about the Lord's return, and others long for it, most never give it a thought. They're so caught up in the things of today that they never think about what's coming tomorrow. When Jesus comes, it'll be just like the days of Noah. Judgment will catch most totally unaware and unprepared. Right up until the rains fell and the earth began to heave, Noah's contemporaries were busy with the things of life, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Jesus doesn't even mention the evil they were doing, just that they were busy living. So busy living that they hadn't taken the time to think about dying. And so busy that they gave no heed to the ark in their midst until the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in Lot's day. He lived in Sodom, a microcosm of the evil world in which Noah lived. The people there were busy, too, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, Nothing wrong with those things. And again, no mention of their sin. Just that they were busy. Too busy to think about God. They did, however, live sinful lives. And when judgment fell, fire and brimstone destroyed them all. The same will be true for the majority when Christ returns. Most will be busy living their lives, oblivious to the fact that they are living sinful lives in the sight of a holy God. And most will be caught totally unprepared to meet him because they never took time to think about it. Are you too busy to think about it? Are you too busy for regular worship, Bible study, and prayer? If you are, you may be too busy to ever see the kingdom of God. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. 
And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. Now, admittedly, this is not the easiest passage to understand. Jesus is talking about the day the Son of Man will be revealed. He's talking about the second coming. But it begins with a warning that is very similar to one he will give concerning the impending destruction of Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, we find him telling his listeners that when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, they should immediately flee to the mountains. They shouldn't take time to get things from their houses or return home from the field for their coats, even if it happens during the winter. And in Luke 21, the abomination of desolation is identified as armies surrounding Jerusalem. Something that did actually happen in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. Those who heeded Jesus' warning did, in fact, escape the desolation of the city. And what he said certainly makes sense in that setting. It's a little more difficult to see how it fits here. You know, why would anyone be tempted to go back into their house to get their things at the second coming. Obviously, they wouldn't need them. The best answer seems to be that while he was given very practical advice in Matthew 24, he is warning about priorities and values here. And it would obviously indicate a values problem if someone's first reaction to the sky opening and the trumpet sounding is, I've got to get my stuff, my treasures from the house. That would certainly indicate their heart's not right and they aren't ready for the Lord's return. The lesson learned from Lot's wife is that once we start to leave a doomed place, there can be no turning back. She turned back, apparently longing for the things she would be losing and lost everything. The warning is that those who seek to save their life by clinging to the things of this world will lose everything. And those willing to give up everything, who have broken the emotional ties with their stuff and even with life itself, will find themselves saved. We need to get our hearts right now. So when he comes, we'll be ready to go with no second thoughts. I think that's what is being said here. And that may solve the first question we have in this text. But there's another one. There's two more. We come to the second. What is Jesus talking about when he says there will be two men in one bed, one will be taken and the other left? 
There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. The question we need to ask is, who is being taken and who is being left? And at first glance, this does seem to support the rapture we read about in Left Behind. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we are told that the Lord will descend at the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There is no mention of the fate of the wicked there. But most assume the wicked will be left behind. And they assume that the ones being left behind in our current passage are the wicked who are being left behind for judgment or some other premillennial scenario. The problem with that understanding, however, is that Jesus is comparing his coming with Noah's flood and the fire and brimstone that fell on Sodom. And in Matthew 24, he prefaces his words about one being taken and the other being left by stating that just as the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It sounds like the one being taken is being taken to judgment. And that corresponds to Matthew 13, where Jesus speaks of tares being gathered up first to be burned, and then the wheat being gathered up and put into the barn. When questioned about the parable, he explicitly stated that the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and cast them into the furnace of fire. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. To remain consistent with his other teaching on the subject, I think it's better to conclude that the ones being taken in our passage today are being taken to judgment. And the ones being left behind are those who will then rise up to meet the Lord in the air. With that in mind, I want to be left behind when the first notes of the trumpet sound. The point Jesus seems to be making is that those who are not ready, whose hearts are not right, will be snatched away at the second coming, and they will never see the kingdom of God. In its fullness. I think that fits. With all of scripture. The disciples had one 
Final question. Where would those who were being snatched away go? Where, Lord? Well, I don't think Jesus answers the question at all. Instead, he simply says, where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. He seems to be saying, don't worry about where they will be taken. The agents of judgment will gather wherever they are needed, like vultures gathering about the body that needs to be devoured. The place to which they'll be taken is not our concern. What's important is that we be ready when the Son of Man appears. Don't get so busy living this life that you never stop to think about the next. Wonder about it. Long for it. Look for it. And by all means, be ready for it. Make room for Jesus in your life now. And you will find you are in his kingdom in its fullness when he returns. That's my prayer for us all. Have we made room for Jesus in our busy lives today? So we will see the kingdom of God in its fullness tomorrow. I pray that we will. Let's stand. Thank you.